Where am I? Oh, I'm right here. Sock Rapids, there you go. Turn to, that, that's what I'm looking for. Turn, turn to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. I'm going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And today we're looking at the second part of this chapter. It's really about just a great awakening that's going to happen in the end of time. How many of you have read the book, This Present Darkness? Raise your hand, okay? This Present Darkness. The rest of you, you need to read this book because it's, it's actually a great novel. So, I mean, so really, I mean, you, once you pick it up, you can't put it down, that kind of a novel. But it describes this, this town going through this spiritual warfare because we're, we're all physical beings, but we're also spiritual beings. And there's a physical and a spiritual thing that we need to be aware of. And there's this spiritual battle going on. And the book describes it, and it talks about angels and demons and this and that. So it's kind of, you know, pretty cool the way it does it, okay? Well, the book of Revelation is like this present darkness on steroids, okay? It is, that is what we're seeing, this massive clash. In the end, the enemy is going to raise up his ugly head like never before, but God will raise up a standard against him. Evil will almost be unbearable, but revival will also be at its peak. We saw last week how God will bring the Jewish people into the kingdom in droves. All Israel will be saved. This week we see that the awakening will spread to all people all over the world. And Satan will not like it. A cosmic showdown is coming. It will be difficult, but it will be the most exciting time to be alive as our passage brings out. Let's read it. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people robed in white and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This, as we saw last week, chapter 7 is an interlude. In between the cycles of judgment, there's going to be, we've seen the seven seals, the trump, then there'll be trumpets and seven bowls as well. This interlude is between the sixth and the seventh seal. 
Okay, the trumpets are coming after that. But let's revel in this awesome time of revival to come that it's describing here. That what I believe is going to be the greatest awakening the planet will ever see. So, as we walk through this, in verses 9 through 10, as well as 13 through 14, it answers the question, who are they? Last week, we looked at that, who are the 144,000 that he's talking about in that first section, and, and, uh, we, and it speaks of the Jewish people as the first fruits uh, uh, who will come to the Lord. And then verse 9 here, who are these people? Well, in verses 9 and 10, we see that they are people from every tribe and nation who will be saved. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. That doesn't mean that God and the Lamb will be saved. It means the salvation comes from them, and they have received it. But this is a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language who will be saved. I love what Daniel Aiken says in his commentary. He says, In this massive throng of the redeemed in heaven, there is not the slightest hint of bigotry, ethnocentrism, prejudice, or racism. Of the 11,243 people groups in the world, each is pre- present and represented. Of the 3,056 people groups currently unengaged, each is represented. Of the 3.7 billion persons still not having an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel, the Lamb is reaching out and calling them unto Himself by the Spirit and through His people. The gospel is going to be heard and believed among all the peoples of the earth. i tell you what, I love that first song we sing where it talks about people from all over the world, all colors, everything. You know, the, that's what it's going to be like. People from every tribe and nation will be saved. Now, how could this happen? Okay, well, we've been looking at it. We're calling this the Great Awakening coming soon. And we looked at this last week. We talked about awakenings, the first and second Great Awakenings that, that took place and the difference between an awakening and a revival. Remember, a revival is really when God's people are stirred up and revived in their hearts. But an awakening is when lost people in droves come to Christ. And we've seen that happen in church history, and what we're going to see here is that at the end, it's going to be the greatest of all. Jonathan Edwards speaks of uh, this. He has this idea that at the very end of time, we will experience the greatest of all revivals. He says this, and we have reason from Scripture prophecy to suppose that at the commencement of that last and greatest outpouring of the Spirit of God, That is, to be in the latter ages of the world, the manner of the work will be very extraordinary and such as never has yet been seen. That it's going to be so awesome we can't believe it that God will move in His greatest way through miracles and so forth with people in droves coming to Christ. Now, with awakenings... Uh, really, it comes, revival comes in ebbs and flows. When you study church history, there's high points where just things seem to be soaring and lots of people getting saved and discipled, and then, and then it goes down, you know, and kind of 
goes to normal and then back up. And so that's kind of how you see ebbs and flows. Well, this is going to be a flow. Okay, and uh, and that's and I believe uh, along with Jonathan Edwards that it's going to be accompanied with the miraculous, that it's going to be the greatest time where God rises up against Satan, as we've been seeing Satan coming and and really trying to do havoc in the world, but God rising up and and combating him through uh, people getting saved and and also I believe through the miraculous. Look at Habakkuk chapter three, verse two. It's just towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, in, in Habakkuk, we see a prayer. And this is how Habakkuk prayed. He said, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. And that's what he's that's a prayer for this time period as well, this end of time, that though God's wrath is beginning to be poured out in your wrath, remember mercy, and we see the prayer being answered. Multitudes are gonna come to Christ and experience his mercy in the midst of all this. In wrath, but but the way he prayed, revive your work in these years, make it known. He's basically praying, do it again, God. Right? He sees the stuff in the Old Testament and the stuff with Jesus and so forth. Well, he didn't see Jesus because he's before him. But, you know, but I mean, as we look back and we see all these things and we read about the miracles and this, and we say, do it again, God. That's a good prayer. Okay? And we, uh, look at the next one. Look at Psalm 77, verse 14. The psalmist teaches us how to pray in Psalm 77. Verse 14, he says, You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. He's the one who works wonders. Do it again, God. Look at Psalm 144, verse 5. Here's another prayer. Lord, part your heavens and come down. Touch the mountains and they will smoke. Lord, come down. Do it again. Show your awesome power, especially reaching the lost. But do the miraculous, Lord. We see, look at Jeremiah 32, verse 20. Jeremiah, he was going through a very, very difficult time. This is when the Babylonians had come in and, and had destroyed Jerusalem and, and wrecked the temple and, and killed lots of the Jewish people and exiled many others. Jeremiah 32, verse 20. He says, You performed signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. He's thinking back at the old you know, time with Moses in the land of Egypt. And do so to this very day, both in Israel and among mankind. You made a name for yourself, as is the case today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see these prayers, Lord, come and show your power. We see in the end that that's perhaps the way he's going to reach people, many of the people, is through the miraculous, rising up against the enemy and his, and his uh, plans. I've shared this with you before, but I, I just as I was thinking of this, I, I remembered that time when Elizabeth and I, we were driving out to California. We were in a little Isuzu iMark, real small car, and it was extremely windy. And we were getting blown all over the road, and uh, we pulled off to a wayside rest, and my wife had to use the restroom, and, 
And, uh, and as she's in the bathroom, I'm standing outside, and I look over, and there's this biker. And he was like the, the meanest, ugliest-looking biker you ever saw. Looked like he had just killed his mom. And I'm just kidding. He didn't, you know, okay, but he really was big, you know. I mean, it's okay. Mother's Day, that's probably bad. Anyway, okay. So, so anyway, but then I sensed that, that impression from the Lord. Go and tell him about me. And so I went over and I started talking. We were talking about motorcycles. And then and I asked him, I said, you know, how in the world are you getting by in this wind? I mean, this is, this is horrible for us in the car. And he says, you know, it's really bad, but I have to make it to L.A., uh, by a certain time, so I can't, there's nothing I can do about it. And then I said to him, I said, well, you know, I felt like the Lord told me to come over and talk to you, and, and, and so I just wanted to know, do you know what would happen to you if you were to die tonight? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, well, what? He said, I'd be reincarnated. And I said, oh. <laughs> He's this big, you know, right, okay. And, uh, and, then, and then I asked him, I said, well, can I pray for you? He said, sure. And so I prayed for him, and I, I don't know where it came from, but I just the boldness all of a sudden came as I'm praying. I'm bowing my head, and I said, Lord, I pray that you bless my friend. And I ask that you would do so in such a way that you just show him a miracle, that you would cause the wind to die down in such a supernatural way that he would know that reincarnation is a lie and that Jesus Christ is the only way to you. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, he's going to hit me. He's going to hit me. You know, and I, and I looked up. And he said, thank you, okay? And, so, and then we, my wife, she's coming out, and she's like, what in the world are you doing talking to that guy? And, uh, <laughs> and we get in the car, and we start driving. Within a minute, the wind died down just like that. I mean, in such a way that you knew that that was God. And I think we can, we're going to see stuff like that, especially in the end, more and more and more, this greatest of all awakenings. And so uh, the people from every tribe and nation will be saved in this time period. But who are they? Back to this question. In verses 13 and 14, we see that they're martyrs. Uh, look at what it says in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people robed in white, and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Coming out of the great tribulation, that word coming out, erkamai in the Greek, he's really talking about they left. Okay, They came out of it either through natural causes, but probably most of them through being martyred. We've already seen that in the seals, how uh, there's a great persecution and many will be killed for their faith. And so these are the martyrs, but specifically it says being martyred, coming out of the great tribulation. This idea of the great tribulation is referred to in the, in the Bible in several places. Uh, in Daniel chapter 12, why don't you turn there, verses 1 through 4, we see that it is the climax of this great battle, this angelic war that, you know, like this present darkness was describing. In chapter 10 and 11 of Daniel, he was describing this, this great battle between Michael the archangel and the, the demonic realm. And it says in chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up 
There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. That's the great tribulation. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In the end, I like that last phrase, those who lead many to righteousness, those who are used by God to bring about this incredible, great revival or awakening that we see in chapter 7. But notice this, this is this angelic war taking place in the spiritual realm as we see and experience this convulsions, so to speak, in the natural realm as well, the greatest of all tribulations that will take place. Jesus talked about it. In Matthew chapter 24, look at Matthew 24. We've seen how, as we walked through these seals, how in Matthew 24, when he spoke of these birth pains and that it's in the exact sequence that we see in Revelation, the seals. And so he climaxes with this revival in verse 14, but then later he speaks of this tribulation. Look at verse 21. He says, for at that time, there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect. And so for a short time, there's going to be the greatest of all tribulations. As we walk through this in verse 29, he mentions it again immediately after the tribulation of those days, that great tribulation at the very end, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the celestial powers will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, of heaven and with power and great glory he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of the sky to the other in the end of time but this great tribulation these people we're seeing here this greatest of all awakenings are those who come to Christ and many of which are martyred for their faith during this great tribulation In George Eldon Ladd's commentary, he talks about this. He says, in fact, tribulation, persecution, is the normal expectation of the church in the world. John 16, 33, Acts 14, 22, Romans 8, 35. The great tribulation will be but a concentration of the same satanic hostility which the church has experienced throughout her entire existence when Satan, in one final convulsive effort, tries to turn the hearts of God's people away from their Lord. Don't let him turn you away from the Lord. He's going to try, but God is going to raise up a standard against him. But in the midst of this, we will see martyrdom. You know, martyrdom is on the rise. Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ are being killed right now for their faith. If you don't receive the voice of the martyrs, you should get this and, and so that you know how to pray. And it describes how uh, regularly Christians are being killed for their faith. In this particular article, that it's titled, Where Christians Are Hunted. Right now, in Mogadishu, Somalia, 
Christians are being hunted specifically because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see here the martyrdom. So who are these? They are the martyrs, but also they are the truly saved. If you notice that, that last phrase, they, they're coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the truly saved, washed in the blood. You know, sometimes Christians say we shouldn't use that kind of terminology because it sounds weird, right? You know, in fact, we say Christians shouldn't use Christianese. You shouldn't talk that Christian language. You should just use language like the world uses and talk to them with their language. And there is a point for contextualization, absolutely. But listen, if it's in the Bible, why wouldn't you use it? Have you ever walked up to somebody and asked them, have you been washed in the blood? Now, they're going to look at you weird, right? But then you got an opportunity to talk to them and tell them what you're talking about. You you go on and you say, you know, all of us have this guilt, this stain, because we've all done wrong. And we all have this this stain that we can't. We try to wash it off, but we can't. There's nothing we can do. But Jesus Christ, he died on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And that blood, I mean, all this sounds weird because blood usually creates stains, right? But this blood is so powerful, it literally washes us white as snow, takes away the guilt, takes away the stain, cleanses us. Is that something you'd want? Doesn't that sound good? That's what they've experienced. They truly have. That's why I'm calling them the truly saved. They truly have experienced this cleansing from Jesus by simply placing their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. They are humble in repentance and great in faith. That's what I see about these people here described. Humble in repentance. You see, we have to come to a place where we say, I can't can't do it if it's up to me i'm sunk i have to humbly come to you and say lord forgive me will you please change my life because i can't change myself humble in repentance Uh, we're not like what uh, david mckenna describes he's actually it's a poem that john guest wrote uh, and this is the poem He says, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my wife's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and this is what he dragged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy locked my dolly in the trunk, and so it follows naturally that I am always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day. That is why I suffer now from kleptomania. When I was three, I suffered from ambivalence toward my brothers. That is just the reason why I poisoned all my lovers. I'm so glad since I have learned that lesson that I've been taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And that's how we so often see it, isn't it? But these people came to realize, no, I'm a sinner and I cannot stop. But I see my Savior. He can save me from this. Oh, God, save me. Humble in repentance, but great in faith. 
believing in God, but you can do it, God. Use me. I'll even die for my faith. That's what I see, this great in faith that reminds me of William Carey, that great uh, missionary to India. He said that phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. So we see this. That's the truly saved, humble in repentance, but great in faith. So that's the who they are. And then we move on in the passage and we see that praise is the result. Look at verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne, the eight elders and the four living creatures, and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God. We've seen these groups of people, the elders, the living creatures, and so forth, and the angels already in the book, and we've seen and discussed who they are. But they're all together, and this is what's going on, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're joining with those, this group who's began to praise God in verse 10, saying salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Joining them in praise. Praise is the result. Now, I want you to notice that the focus is not on us. It's on God, isn't it? This praise, the focus is on God. You know, sometimes when I listen, I'll listen to the Christian radio, and many of the songs, it seems to me, are all about us. And they're teaching truths and truths that perhaps we do need to hear and be reminded of, that we're special and that, you know, God has a plan and this and that, you know. And, and I know all that's true, but it just seems to me that if we get our focus off of ourselves, we're going to be better off. And it seems to me that the praise shows us that it's, it's on him. I did hear a great song yesterday on the Christian radio. It was about, I don't know that it's the first time I ever heard it, but it, was a, it says something about the name of Jesus is wonderful, and at the end, the name of Jesus is powerful. It's all about the name. Oh, man, was, anybody know what song I'm talking about? No? Well, uh, anyway, it was a good song because it was, it was focusing on Jesus, and, and that, that his name, it just, just makes my heart melt. And that's because the focus has to be on God. We'll talk about that more in just a bit. Because in the end here, verses 15 through 17, we see the blessings of the end described. So he concludes it with the blessing of the end described, and which is kind of interesting because we're only at chapter 7, right? <laughs> right? But, but the only chapter 7, we need to be reminded of the ultimate end result. God's ultimate plan, which can keep us focused no matter what we are going through or will go through. We need to hear this reminder that the ultimate end, we win. (laughs) But God wins. That's the most thing. The focus is still on God in this. In fact, uh, these blessings, it starts out in verse 15 with priestly worship. He says, for this reason, they are before the throne of God, And they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. Notice here, it's not, okay, now we just kick back, right, and get served. We serve him. It is all about him, not us. And so even 
at the end, they're serving. This word for serve is worship service. We are all priests. And that's what it's referring to here, this priestly worship of God. A great book. If you're going through difficult times, a great book, uh, When Your Rope Breaks by Stephen Brown. And uh, it's all about how to get through difficult times in your life. Well, chapter 2 is called, and I'm going to read some excerpts throughout this chapter, okay? Chapter 2 is called, It's Not Your Party. He says, the good news in this chapter is you have been invited to a party. The bad news is that it isn't your party. If you think it is your party and you act accordingly, then the news of this chapter is going to be very bad indeed. But once you understand the one for whom the party is given, all things considered, it isn't such a bad party after all. He later says, you can choose to believe that the world is a wonderful playground created by a benevolent creator for your enjoyment and pleasure. With this belief, you will see your broken rope as a temporary aberration in the norm, or you will pretend that the broken rope really isn't broken. But when things get really tough, that's when you're going to be disillusioned. He goes on and he says, If you understand the rules of a game, you may not like the rules, but you'll play a lot better. Most people, however, seem to be playing a football game with baseball rules. That is, they're living in a world with a whole set of presuppositions. I'm supposed to be happy. The world centers around me. I'm more important than anything else, which simply aren't true. And if you're playing with as if those are the presuppositions, you're in for a very, very difficult heartache. He concludes, life is about the king. It's not about his servants or his lands or his subjects. It is only about the king. In the midst of breaking ropes, our God reigns. If you don't understand that, I mean really understand that and you belong to him if you understand that you can face almost anything recognizing that it's about the king a friend of mine pastor in Florida Pastor Jamie told me this story once of what he went through in his congregation it was one Sunday morning they had this incredible service Okay, I think it's like every one of our services. But anyway, he's, so he had this incredible service where just everybody was just in tune and united and praising God and everything was just going well. And at the end, they just belted out that song, Our God Reigns. And they were just singing from the depths of their soul, Our God Reigns, Our God Reigns. You know what song I'm talking about? Okay, yeah, that one, all right? And, uh, and he says he just went home, and it was just incredible. And then about, it was like an hour or two later, he got a phone call from a new couple that had just started visiting the church, and they, they said, we need you to come over. Our, our son has died, and we need you to pray for him and raise him from the dead. And so he went over there. I can't remember if it was at the hospital or at their house or however the exact situation, but he went over there and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and the son did not come back to life. And he got back in his car and it had started raining and he's driving 
And then he sensed that still small voice from God who said, I want you to sing that song now. And he said, I can't. And then he sensed it again. If you can't sing that song now, then I don't want you to ever sing it again. And so he began to sing it. Our God reigns. It wasn't with the same gusto, but it was with the truth that we see in the book of Revelation that God is still on the throne. He does reign over the heavens and the earth. And in the midst of our pain and our tragedy and the times when we don't understand at all, we need to say our God reigns. It's all about him and he will turn the bad into good just as he promised in Romans 8, 28. It's all about him. Now, we will be taken care of. Our basic needs, verse 16, they will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. And we see our basic needs will be met. Isaiah 49.10 brings this out as well. And yes, by the way, we will have physical bodies in the kingdom. You see, God's ultimate plan, He made us originally, and His ultimate plan is for us to be both physical and spiritual beings. We will always have physical bodies except when you die and you go to heaven at that point you don't have a physical body but you're incomplete in heaven we're not fully complete until the day of the resurrection when we receive our resurrection bodies because we were made but those resurrection bodies here's his promise will no longer hunger, will no longer thirst. In the very end, this is it. No longer will the sun strike us with any, with any heat. Apparently, we won't live in Florida. <laughs> Be in Minnesota. Winter is a good thing. I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, it is, but I'm, you know, okay. All right. So we see our basic needs will be met, but also, verse 17, abundant life with the Lamb as the shepherd for the lamb who is at the center of the throne. Now notice it says he's at the center of the throne because Jesus is God. The lamb is at the center of the throne. He will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Abundant life with the lamb as shepherd. Now that's kind of strange. The lamb is the shepherd. Okay? But we've kind of seen some of these, you know, the blood of Christ cleanses us and makes us white as snow. That's, that's that idea, but that abundant life, this terminology, this, uh, this, these, these ideas, these pictures, it harkens back to Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is our shepherd. It reminds me of Isaiah 25, that great banquet feast that we'll partake in. And John chapter 10, verses 7 through 11. Turn there. John chapter 10. We see this where Jesus is our shepherd and takes care of us as the sheep. In John chapter 10, verse 7, it says, So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. That's the enemy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So he came that we might have life and life in abundance. And by the way, that's an experience that we can have even now in part. This abundant life, but fully and completely with the springs of living water and the wiping away of our tears and all that. With him as our shepherd, that's in the very, very end. Now I know that we're nowhere near the end of the book of Revelation. (laughs) But we need to see the end, the ultimate outcome of all this to help us through whatever we might have to face. With this in mind, it is easier to see that it is not about us. It is about Him. We are here to advance the kingdom of God, not party till you puke. There is tremendous joy in this life because God is good and we do experience the kingdom in part now, especially when we're involved in the plan, okay? But we have this promise in Revelation chapter 7 of a great awakening like no other. Will you find your part and work together to see this awakening. I want to see it. I don't want to just play Christianity life as usual. I want to see the kingdom. I want to see miracles. I want to see people saved. I want to see lives absolutely radically transformed, not just, I said a prayer, but absolute changes in people. I love hearing your stories, by the way, so keep telling me them, okay? But that's what I want to see, and we can... See, now, God, it's, he's sovereign. He's the one who brings us about. But he invites us to pray and to share and to participate in that way. So let's do that, okay? Let's pray. Father, uh, if we confess, you know, we look at this stuff and we say, I don't even want to even be anywhere near that time period. But, Father, I do want to be a part of this revival, a part of this awakening.